Welcome to Kinetic Conversations. In this episode, we're taking an eclectic and personal journey through old and new sound bites as we take a small glimpse into what it means to be a dancer. Fort Wayne Ballet is blessed to have a wide variety of dancers from all over the world, as well as working with dance professionals with impressive careers. All have unique journeys, challenges, and perspectives as they work and continue their journey through dance. We hope you enjoy this inside look. We start with a look back at an interview we did in 2019 with Raymond Lukens, international instructor and former dancer, as well as one of the creators of the ABT National Training Curriculum. In this interview, he discusses with Fort Wayne Ballet Artistic Director Karen Gibbons-Brown the modern methods and care that go into training young dancers. Anything that requires a great deal of work, like becoming a dancer or becoming a musician or becoming a sportsman, it just, there's so much work involved and it requires also a natural ability. So it's very selective on its own for that. But those people who study these things, you know, they go, they do, everybody does sports. Everybody should learn to play an instrument. It's very good for them. Everybody should do any kind of physical activity. If the experience is positive, those people will love what they're seeing and they'll understand it better. I mean, if I speak French, I can read French poetry and enjoy it if I don't speak French. So if I don't understand it, I can't really appreciate it. The more you know, the more you appreciate. But people do want to see excellence. People do want to see a product that is really beautiful and magical and that touches them at a deep level. What's really interesting about ballet and in music too, I have to say, there's that moment, these moments where you just don't understand why. Why are you so moved by that? And it's almost like poetry in sound or in movement. And it's abstract. You sometimes don't even know why. And it's just expressing the human condition. And a little example, there's a, a ballet called Napoli. And I remember they were teaching a girl She's getting married and she has to do an arabesque position with her leg in the back. And she places the arm and the head in one position because she says, yes, I'm getting married. And then she turns around and she does the arabesque and she puts the head in the other position. Oh my God, I'm getting married. So that is something that is part of being a human being. And the audience, even though they might not understand the narrative, but they feel it. It's really is visceral. It's really wonderful. We talk about dance and creating dancers or giving children a dance education, but there are so many other things that a student of dance gains and lifelong skills that carry them through life. I think that's something we can't forget. No. Usually when people study dance, they're making brain connections, neurological connections that are way more advanced, like studying music. Anything that requires a level of concentration, which is harder, but it has to be fun. We know that when people are having a good time doing it, the connections of the neurons happens way, way more. Think of it in terms of when you have a child and they memorize the entire script of the Disney movie <laughs> and they know every single word of every single character, every single song, but they have to learn a little poem in school and it's a tragedy. So actually <laughs> giving that sense of enjoyment while learning that is very beneficial. But ballet also has the sports activities. Your muscles are getting stronger. And so there's a whole range of benefits in it because ballet is so scientifically put together, it's actually a really perfect way of getting physical education. 
One thing about ballet is that when I was directing Boston Ballet 2, we had to justify why are we giving money or why are we investing in Boston Ballet 2. So I went back and did a little research to the history of Boston Ballet, and they had not really kept good archives. So it took me forever, lots of work. But we found out everybody who was in the company were ACE students. They all went on to have other careers that were incredibly successful. And another story, which is really interesting, there was a school in Virginia called Virginia School of the Arts in Lynchburg, Virginia. Lynchburg, Virginia, the county, used to receive a lot of money for education because the academic level was so high. But then Virginia School of the Arts was closed down and the academic level of the county plummeted. So they lost the money on education because the school had actually raised the level of education in the area. So you know how they work out where the grants go, where the Funding, money goes. Yeah. Right. So ballet is actually a win-win situation. So we've been talking a bit, Raymond, about educating young bodies and training them to be dancers or good lifelong citizens with great skills for many things. We've learned so much about kinetics and the capability of a human body in the last 20 years. How has that affected how we train dancers? Well, it's informed us. So we know how to avoid issues. So you want to avoid a problem. You want to not create a problem. Because dancing is so selective and very few people can actually achieve a professional standard, for the people who are not gifted that way, it could actually be damaging if not done with care. But for the professional dancer, it's also a way to make their careers longer so they can have a healthy, happy, and longer career. It's incredible how much we have learned. I mean, I wish I had known, or I wish some of my teachers had known <laughs> some of the things that we know today. And, you know, th there was this thing at one time that you had to be really tough with students to make them work harder and have them have a thick skin. And we know that that's not true. That doesn't really work. It's better to have a positive approach. Not to lie, you have to tell the truth, because especially younger children, they love the truth. And I'm sure that you've had this as a director, that you might have a meeting with a parent and the child there, and the parent might fib a little bit, and the child will look up and say, but that's not true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My own children, too. <laughs> so that that is something that it's normal for the child. So you must never really lie to the child. But there's no point in putting down anybody. So we've known that that's an important aspect of training now. Right. And there is such a drive now to have extremes in dance, extreme turnout, extreme extension, extreme pirouettes, multiple turns. And then there's the school of thought that it's more about the artistry and not the pyrotechnics of the movement. Where do you sit on that? This is a tricky question because the extreme, extreme turnout, the 180 degree turnout, that has been part of ballet from day one. The turnout was established to give the ability to move in all directions easily. It actually comes from fencing. But lifting the legs very high or overstretching, that has become, I think, too much in the sense that you can damage the ligaments and the joints, and, and it's really, really dangerous. Uh, and I think it's aesthetically not as pleasing as a line that balances each other, like in sculpture or in art. Sometimes we forget that it is an art form. But... Depending on the ballet that you're doing, like Kevin McKenzie said, depending on the dress that you're going to wear, some ballets are very uh, animalistic or structured differently. Some 
Ballets are very classical in nature, or so you have to consider where they are in history. And the closer we are to what it should be in that period in history, the better it is. The extremes, I, I'm not really that much for the extremes. I think there has to be a really good balance. And I think the most important thing is the artistry. You have to be able to connect with the audience on a intellectual level, on an emotional level, and you have to be able to connect in an aesthetic level. So there has to be the aesthetics, the emotion, and the intellect. So even the mathematics or the designs or the, the actual brilliance of like Mozart's music, which is mathematically mm. so perfect. I tell our dancers quite often, you have to share your heart with your audience. If you can't share your heart, then it is only an exercise. Exactly. My name is Ava Burns. I am 25 years old and I'm from Dayton, Ohio, and I've been dancing for almost over 21 years. And I'm Brittany Folkt. I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and I've been dancing for about 19 years. I started dancing ballet when I was three, and I would dance around the house, usually just in a tutu and nothing else. And I set all my stuffed animals on the stairs like they were my audience. And I would sing and dance and perform. And I would just annoy my mom all day. Um, I'm the firstborn of a big family. So the, I was the first one to be set in ballet at three. And then my brother came next and my sisters, and they all got put in ballet just because was all easier, but we all fell in love with it in our own way. And I, I switched studios to like a more jazz studio when I got older. And then once I realized that I just really wanted to pursue ballet, I think I was around 12. I switched to like a more serious ballet studio that had a pre-professional ballet company um, like attached to it in Dayton. And I kind of got to clean up my technique and like figure out who I was as a dancer. And then after that, I went to University of Cincinnati and I majored in ballet and I did two years there. And then I went to Ballet Met as a trainee because UC has a co-op program. So I was able to do my last two years and get credit for it. But I actually graduated a semester early. So I graduated in December of 2020, sorry, December of 2019. I was supposed to graduate in 2020. But it all worked out because I got to have a graduation. And then I auditioned for Fort Wayne Ballet in February of 2020, right before COVID. And when I got that letter in the mail, my letter of intent to become a core, I was so excited because I knew there was like hope at the end of like once COVID was done, I knew I had someplace else to go to. And I've been here ever since. And now I teach in the academy and I love Fort Wayne Ballet. So that's my journey of how I got here. What about you, Brittany? Um, I actually were pretty unconventional uh, journey as far as starting ballet. I've danced since I was about four years old, but mostly was jazz and musical theater. Uh, and then when I was turning 16, I decided to just total 160 flip and started doing ballet instead. I started at a really small studio that was basically in a garage. Um, and I danced there for two years, uh, 16 and 17. And then when I was at summer intensive program in Washington, DC with the Washington ballet, the head of the school there saw me and really enjoyed my dancing and thought I had a lot of potential. And I got really lucky and they made a spot for me in their uh, PTPA, which is their pre-professional track program. 
And I danced with the school for about two years and I was promoted into the company as a trainee. From there, that's right around when COVID hit was my trainee year at Washington Ballet. I luckily had auditioned uh, just as you had before COVID hit and had a spot at Kansas City Ballet also as a trainee and was there for a year, but things were very different because of all of the uh, regulations. We weren't dancing all too much. But from there, I had auditioned via video for Fort Wayne Ballet and got a contract. And I think I signed it the same day I got it. I was yeah. really, really excited <laughs> to come out here and um, join the company as a corps de ballet. And this is my second season. I've loved it ever since. Yeah. I I really like how Fort Wayne is like growing as a city as well. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, love it's a really cool city. how we're able to bring ballet to the community. A lot of times, like I lifeguard at the YMCA and I see a lot of people that have lived in Fort Wayne their whole life. And I'll be like, you should come to the ballet. Like, and I'll like print off a poster (laughs) that like I print off at home and like very large print for them. And they're like, where is it at? And I'm like, oh, at the Arts United Center. Like not at the embassy. Like, no, 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 no. And then they come and then they tell their friends. And then I have like a group of water aerobic ladies that come (laughs) to some performances, but I think that's the really cool thing because we both come from companies that are a little bit bigger in size. And I think that's the one thing about Fort Wayne that stands out against anywhere that I've visited or been is the community just rallies around the ballet. They're always here for us whenever, you know, if we're on tour, if we're doing our main stage productions, if we're in the studios, like it's really cool to personally get to know the community, but also just the community that we have in the ballet. The dancers here are much more of a family than yeah. anywhere else I've yeah. seen. No. Everyone's so supportive of one another. And, you know, we all have our, our backstage rituals before we go on for flowers. We, we all have to hug. We have to do our huddle before we go on for flowers. Or if somebody's making their debut in Nutcracker, everyone is backstage watching and cheering them on. Yeah. I think that's really special. I, I haven't found that anywhere else uh, personally. Yeah, I was going to say, like, here it's like, everyone's able to talk to everyone. Oh, yeah. And everyone's supporting everyone. Um, and I especially I feel... Like on that note, the company members, especially the more senior company members, are so supportive to the younger company members. Like they've been in our shoes and they want to help and they want to make that journey easier than they've had it. Or if they had, you know, if they had good mentors as well, um, which is amazing. Hard to find. Our next look into a dancer's journey is from an interview last year with one of the Arpino Foundation's leading repetitors, Cameron Baisden. Here, Cameron and Karen discuss what it means for a dancer to have a piece created on or specifically for them, as opposed to a piece being reset on a dancer by a repetitor. With a dancer's abilities and determination being the key factor in restaging established pieces. You alluded to it in terms of your relationship with Mr. Arpino, and I know, Karen, you have some experience with this too. What is it like to have someone set something on you or work through something or it's it's yours? In other words, they're working on it with you in a way that is maybe the first time or only a few people get a chance to do this. And so you get a chance to, to work with that. What does that feel like? I think working with Mr. Arpino for me, I mean, and everybody probably has their own different story, but, but for me, because I was so close to him in the studio, but also close to him externally, you know, as associate director and just, I worked with him on so many different levels as a dancer and also as a friend and as a colleague, his movement to me always felt very familiar. It was always very comfortable. Unlike other that, you know, Twyla Tharp or Sir Frederick Ashton, you really had to learn it and to understand and get it. But his movement was sort of of your body. 
dancers will definitely know what I'm talking about. When you feel like something is so of your body, it's so kind of organic in a way that feels comfortable for you. And not that it was always easy or, or fun or anything like that, but it felt right on your body. And I always felt like that when I was dancing his works, any of them. Um, and he always chose really lovely music. Um, sometimes he chose just crazy music, but there was always something so special and so uh, cool about it. Light Rain is is one of them. It's like the, it's, it's difficult music, but it's like such wonderful music and wonderful in the 80s and wonderful in 2022. You know, it's just uh, amazing music and people still respond to it. They do. The audience is, it's like being at a rock concert exactly. a little bit, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I think my experience has been a little different with those pieces being staged on me or choreographed on me in that Usually it was with a guest choreographer, and I always felt a huge responsibility, which can be a little frightening at yes. the onset. So it takes you a little while to get into the groove of relaxing and getting to know exactly what that specific choreographer might want. Exactly. But it's thrilling at the same time. Yes, it's absolutely. Knowing absolutely. you're creating something that's never been done before is yes. really a special feeling. Yes, when I'm staging things now, I try to bring out that feeling in dancers so that they have an ownership of it, because I think that that has a lot to do with it, that it becomes, you're not trying to replicate something that somebody else has done, but you're trying to make it your own and to take the style and wear it like you put on a beautiful dress or something. So how do you do that, knowing that there's only so much latitude and then it's not the piece? So there's a little bit of that that has to be negotiated. How does that actually work? as much, giving as much information as you can, and then having them do it for you. They also, you know, execute and do the steps and all, and then sort of shaping it and molding it until they find their way to make it theirs and make it correct at the same time. I mean, it, it's a lot of negotiation, which is why we rehearse so much. <laughs> well, I think by and large, dancers want to honor the intent. Yes. And in those rehearsal processes, they get the opportunity to hear the stories of how it was created. What's really amazing about this at this point in time is Cameron is first generation. Yes. If we set a pedipop piece, we're at least five generations away from that. So it becomes a very different process, but she was in the room. So the intent is very true. She can tell you exactly what that was. And we, five or six or seven or eight generations later, have to interpret it as it was given to us. So this is as close as you can get to really honoring what that intent was. And dancers do want to please while they're finding their own way. They generally won't veer off track as long as you continue to explain to them what's going on. I think that also is what makes it interesting to be a dancer because they mm -hmm. don't want to be just the same thing in everything they do. It makes it more interesting and more colorful to do things that are, you know, so classical and so neoclassical mm -hmm. and so contemporary and to sort of bring the vision of whomever choreographed it to life. That's what makes dancing interesting. And what makes it live. Like makes Sleeping it live. Beauty Absolutely. is still beautiful no matter how many generations away from Petipal we are. Yes. This is really amazing to see. But, you know, you have more than one couple working on the Parada at the same time. And I've been able to stick my head in the room a little bit. Each couple has something very different and special to your point of interpreting the pieces. It's different on each couple. The intent is still there and the movement is still beautiful, but they all have their own little things. Yes, that was very well said. And they're very different, actually. The men are different, the, the women are different, but they're very true to what's supposed to be being said, to the intent right. behind what the Padada is. You've talked about Mr. Arpina, you've talked about Petipa. Those are choreographers. 
when you look at what you're doing, do you miss the fact that you're not choreographing or do you like being a repetitor and setting someone else's work? And how does that balance in terms of you staying fresh with, you know, what it is that you're presenting to your dancers and, and keeping you thinking? I mean, what, what are the differences? I mean, I know not everybody is a, a choreographer, but how does that play into what the two of you do? Well, I would never want to be a choreographer. I think that those individuals are wonderful at what they do, and some people have voices that go in that direction, and they should be allowed to go in that direction. And uh, I would never want to be one of those because I think I'm what I do at, in staging ballets, it is fulfilling to me, so I feel that that's where my voice is the best. I feel like I am a good repetitor. I can bring forth other people's visions very, very well. And sometimes... People that are choreographers don't necessarily like to do that part of it. They like to choreograph and then sort of leave it. And I'm good at taking it from there and bringing it to where it needs to get. I don't consider myself a choreographer either. I do fill in choreography. Yes, yes I've done a couple of things for our productions here, right. but it's I don't choreograph whole ballets or full-length evenings. And I don't feel like it's my gift either. I feel like my gift is sharing it sharing what I know with the dancers and restaging things and making sure they have the background and the capability of doing what's technically required because those older ballets are really difficult technically. It hasn't gotten easier through generations. It hasn't gotten easier. Even though dancers have gotten better, Right. I think that dancers have gotten so much better and they can do so many more things. I mean, some of the things that were done in the 20s and 30s, oh my goodness gracious, they are difficult. Right. So when you talk about the difference between uh, dance and, and choreography and all of this as we look at moving forward, talk a little bit about the balance when you're creating interest in the field. You, you talked about new works and choreography. You talked about staging older works, the difficulty, the balance. Where do you see the field continuing to go and how does that balance need to continue? You don't want to lose old pieces and things that need to be seen, but you, you also need to have new voices. So how does that work as we, we talk about putting these things together and putting programs together? That's a really wonderful question, and it's also very relevant, especially in this time as we're sort of moving, looking to the future, having come out of a very difficult uh couple of years um, that people are saying, you know, where does dance fit? How do we do it? How do we move ahead? And I think certainly for what I do in restaging works that have been created, you know, Light Rain was created in the 80s. So that was kind of a while ago. So keeping it fresh, allowing the dancers to add their technique of today into works that were done a while ago. So it stays alive, it stays fresh, it stays innovative, it stays interesting, and uh, and not a museum piece. Because I think our, our goal is not to create museum pieces, unless it's by choice. And then, I mean, that's valid too, absolutely. But to keep the works fresh, whether you update the costumes, whether you, you know, add something in the choreography, not add, but you augment, I should say, not Embellish. add embellish a little bit, embellish, yeah. So it stays fresh and timely for today, timely for the audiences of today. You don't want it to look dated and old unless you want it to. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think we both have said neither one of us consider ourselves choreographers, but I do think while we're not creating specific choreography, we're creating stronger dancers and artists yes. and offering them an opportunity to express and explore in a safe environment and then present it in a very valid and appropriate way. Yes. I found that dancers now, I mean, they, they can do more turns. Their legs go higher. Things that were very difficult in certain other times 
are not difficult now. So you work on something else that, that becomes more true for today's audiences and for today's dancers that they, that they find interesting and sort of push the envelope a little bit to make it uh, challenging for them without losing what was special about the piece in the first place. My name is David Claypool, and this is my seventh season with the Fort Wayne Ballet. Yeah, so uh, one of the fun things about dance culture is that like some some teachers will give you like nicknames and some uh, some of your friends too. So uh, one of my teachers used to give out nicknames when we were kids in class, and it kind of showed a little bit of favoritism on his part. So if you had a nickname, it was kind of kind of a good thing. Uh, but he gave me a nickname, and it was uh, he gave me a nickname of Muffin. And so it was a funny nickname, but at the time I was like, I don't know if I wanted that. So I, he just kept calling me David for a while and, uh, it permeated later on into, into dancing as a, as, as I got older. And so some of my friends like would give me a nickname. They would, there was a series of time where they would combine like my first name and last name and giving me a nickname of Clavid. And, uh, then there was another time that I had brought my mom's chicken noodle soup for like four days straight for lunches. And so it was like, Soupy, what are you doing? So like, what you, what you having today? So it was really funny for that. And then it kept going on and we'd continue on with the, the pun jokes. So it'd be like, soup's up, man. <laughs> or like, they'd ask me like, what's up? And I'd be like, soup. And it would just be an inside joke between us. It was fun times. Yeah, just little things. I really enjoy that, that level of camaraderie when we get down to it or like uh, with one of the former dancers here, Carrie Coughlin and I, we'd go back and we'd, we'd have pun We'd go, we'd go back at it with like puns back and forth. And even recently when we got together, we'd just sit down at the dinner table and we'd literally just pick things in the room and try and make a pun out of it. It's like, oh boy, there's another fork in the road. We're divided. Oh, so bad. And we're sitting at a dinner table and there's a fork on the table. We just pick the next object and keep going. So I'm all about puns. I'm all about being, uh, being silly and uh, in the simplest of ways. So keep it easy. Hi, my name is Tatum Farlow, and I've been dancing since I was three years old. Um, but I started ballet when I was 15 years old. And after I graduated high school and graduated from the Ballet Memphis School, I attended Butler University. And in my freshman year there, we do a spring ballet full length every year. And my freshman year, it was Swan Lake. I was very excited. And a few freshmen got chosen to understudy the iconic Swan Corps part of Swan Lake, and one of them was myself and my best friend. And we rehearse and we get to the theater. Everything's going great. We get through a couple runs of the show and halfway through the theater process, the lead dancer gets hurt on stage while performing. And mid-performance, my best friend ends up having to go in for the Swan Corps with no notice, just has to step in and do the part that she was understudying. And I remember thinking that she seemed so professional and I remember being very proud of her. And I remember the entire faculty, staff, students all rallied around her and we were all very impressed. And it was a great story or great conversation piece to bring up about like Swan Lake and how sometimes ballets feel like they're cursed and someone always gets injured and you always have to put people in. But then fast forward several years later and I'm here in Fort Wayne and a couple weeks ago we just finished doing Swan Lake and I had a similar situation happen except this time 
I was the person involved. We were about halfway through the runs of Swan Lake and mid-performance, a dancer gets hurt and I was the understudy and I had to step in mid-show and actually get pulled off stage in order to put the costume on and go on for the next act. And I just remember thinking to myself that if my, my best friend could do it as a freshman in college, then I should definitely be able to do it now. And I think that this story just shows how disciplined dancers are, how focused, how smart, how driven, because I just don't know of another profession that demands that level of physicality and mental capacity from a person, like how smart you have to be to know not only your own part and dance and rehearse your own parts, but also to know other people's parts and be able to step in at a moment's notice and do it as if you had been rehearsing the entire time. And I think that now Swan Lake is a cursed ballet for me, but I it's been really cool to see what this profession brings out in a person. And I think that these are life lessons that we can all take with us from our dance career into our next career or our next journey in life is how this profession requires such high level of integrity and professionalism and discipline. And these are all just great life lessons. Finally, we take a look back at a conversation I had with Kim Sagami back in 2018 in the earlier days of our podcast. We will hear more from Kim in our upcoming podcast miniseries on Edward Sterley, which we will begin airing next week. But now, she discusses with us the transition from dancing professionally into teaching the next generations of dancers. You've had a varied and exciting career. Tell us how you got started as a dancer. Well, my mother, herself wanting to dance as a child, didn't have that opportunities growing up. I had a brother and sister. So all three of us she brought to dance, music, and art. Oh, and voice. So she carted us all to these dance lessons and voice lessons and music lessons and art. And um, whichever one we liked, we picked. So I, I love dance. I was the only one that loved dance, so I continued to dance. My brother and sister, my sister loved music and my brother loved music. So I was the only one that kept on dancing. So I trained in Los Angeles until I was in high school. My dance teacher said that I needed to go to New York. That was the only place to go. So right after high school, I convinced my parents that that was the only place I could go if I were to dance. And they believed me. <laughs> <laughs> I went to New York. I trained there at the Joffrey School on scholarship and auditioned for ABT2. And at that time, when you trained with ABT2, you're given two years to train, and then you're let go, and you, you're considered ready to find a job or ready to dance professionally. I didn't get a job right away. I think a lot of dancers can uh, identify with that. But luckily, I happened to be in New York just taking dance classes, and Mr. Joffrey had an opening. Uh, someone got injured in his company, and uh, I got a phone call and said, come to company class. Went to company class, and I was offered a contract and started with the Joffrey. So it was a lucky break. I was in the right place at the right time, which um, I'm eternally grateful because it offered so many experiences that I couldn't have dreamed of. Well, following up on that, as both we heard about in, in sort of your resume, but also what you just said, the Joffrey Ballet had a strong impact on you as a dancer. What are some of the takeaways from that experience that you didn't see while you were going through it, but in retrospect, looking back, you see now? Um, 
I think the biggest influence was the modern or the contemporary and more theater pieces or just different types of repertoire. So my teacher was a Balanchine trained dancer. So I was looking at New York City Ballet or the classics like Swan Lake. What little girl doesn't want to do Swan Lake or Nutcracker? So those are my ideals. But at the Joffrey, they didn't do any of that. They did Arpino works. They did Ashton works. They did works of the 20th century. And what I learned is I learned history because we did works that were done in the past from Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. And then works that were modern, Paul Taylor, Mark Morris, Martha Clark. It it was just a varied repertory that Mr. Joffrey thought his motto was, you do class as simple and as clean as you can, no affectations. And then it's the choreographer that asks you to do style or Mm -hmm. to impose a a certain look that he wanted. But he wanted us to be a clean slate Hmm. so that the artist can come in and paint us however he preferred. And so we were wearing bare feet, we were wearing point shoes, we were wearing ballet shoes, we were wearing boots, we were wearing tap shoes. Whatever the choreographer wanted, we were the clay that he molded or she molded. So kind of following on that a little bit, as a teacher, you are imparting foundational elements and as you described, sort of that palette of basics. But you're also continuing to learn as everyone does. How does that process continue to make you a better teacher? Well, the process of, I think, appreciating all different types of dance forms, which walking into my first day at the Joffrey, I only appreciated ballet and ballet in its most classical form. But being at the Joffrey, I learned to appreciate ballet and modern and theater, like no dancing at all. And to pass it on along to your students is to just try to create an environment of an open mind that their mind can be open to any which way of moving as long as it is safe. But I think from a balanced standpoint now, I only appreciate it now that I'm not dancing, is the importance of having other things in your life, like a husband. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say that getting married kind of opened up a different way of seeing things or uh, having another person to relay their views on things that you had never thought of in that way or to be a support system. Um, It's just an entirely different thing and it adds balance. The other physical thing I do is yoga, which also addresses like a mental balance and that really stimulates me as well. I think for a person to find balance, they need to look outside their box and see that other things in life happen and to appreciate all of the other things in life. So following up on the ideas that you've talked about in terms of being broader in mind and thinking about things in a more broad way, when you look at teaching, ballet, dance has a long tradition and a history of passing things on. Where do you see that in terms of the reverence for the past and the knowledge of the past and the present in the field? How do you marry those two as you're teaching? Uh, Yeah, you started in the classroom with always coming into the studio with an open mind. I mean, I teach that to my students, you know, be open to suggestions. They might not always work for you, but at least try them. And I have to admit, I wasn't open when I was a student. I thought things were one way. But as I started to see different types of movement and how it's relatable to people, it it validated that just thinking in a different way 
makes you more relatable. So I take, for instance, uh, I don't know, Paul Taylor. I never danced barefoot before until I, I was in a Paul Taylor piece. And uh, from Paul Taylor, I learned the appreciation of the thighs and how you need to use that. Uh, at ballet, tried to emphasize, don't use your thighs. But in Paul Taylor, you have to use your thighs to go into the floor. And that really informed my ballet because it created a different dimension to use the thighs in ballet in a way that would facilitate movement. So I think a student, as long as their mind is open, they can learn different ways and cross-reference and make their whole being just more dimensional. When you talk about that openness as a student, obviously being a priority is something you feel is important. When you deal with young dancers, maybe very early on in their training, what do you think are the most important elements there? Is it that openness or is it something else? They, they already come open uh, unless, you know, something at home is happening. But when they're very young, five years old, three years old, seven years old, they come into the room very open. And you, you, <laughs> that's when you try to form some kind of order, even though there's not going to be order in the room, you funnel that creativity into places where they can bring it into their body. It's later on in the teen years, it's harder for them to be open when they become more self-conscious. You're also a trained architect. The two fields or the two disciplines intersect. I'm sure you have a perspective on that. I'm curious, what has that interdisciplinary perspective brought to you as a teacher and as an artist and as a person? Mm-hmm. Well, my tendency is very mathematical, and I've learned that everyone takes away something different. So there are a lot of people who study architecture that come from a dance background, I found out in school. Hmm. But um, we all have a different perspective on it. So my perspective is from the structure. I was always fascinated with geometry. And so I look as a skeleton as that's our structure mm -hmm. and how to best align the structure to bring the maximum effect. So to me, that's most important. And then when I was touring with the Joffrey, that's what opened my eyes to architecture. Because the first time I went to Vienna, I saw the buildings and I saw the churches and I had never seen churches that way before. In America, they're they're dry in comparison to Europe. And then I just started looking more and more at buildings as we went to Paris and Italy. And that's what taught me the importance of place, how the components of a design space can create something special. And that's what I'm trying to bring into dance, that the space you create, maybe with your body or with a group of bodies, can create something special. That's our show, and thank you for joining us as we explored what it means to be a dancer with Raymond Lukens, Cameron Baisden, and Kim Sagami. And a special thank you to our dancers, Ava Burns, Brittany Vocht, David Claypool, and Tatum Farlow for sharing their stories. Kinetic Conversations is brought to you by Fort Wayne Ballet and Wayne Shop Productions. If you'd like to receive notifications on future podcasts, please like the podcast and go to fortwayneballet.org to sign up for notifications on performances, podcasts, and more ballet news. You'll also find a library of past episodes on our website in the menu of options. Until next time, I'm Jim Sparrow, and thanks for listening to Kinetic Conversations with Fort Wayne Ballet.
has been a Wayne Shout production. Wayne Shout. <laughs>